welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. This is episode 12, which was supposed to cover the last two weeks of October 2017, but there's a little bit of a change. The podcast is going to be coming out every three weeks now. I just can't keep up. So this will be the last two weeks of October and maybe the first week of November or so. That's the only major change. Everything else stays the same. I encourage you all to subscribe on iTunes or other podcast subscribing media, Stitcher or whatever. Visit the website gipearls.com or follow me on Twitter gi underscore pearls. Please send me emails with comments, suggestions for articles to review or any other information. You can reach me at dkedron at gmail.com or just use the contact form on gipearls.com. So let's go straight to the literature and review some papers. What do you use for your 4 to 9 millimeter polyps? I hope you don't do too many hot snares. Cold snares have a lower rate for bleeding and don't really cause post-polypectomy syndrome. European Society guidelines specifically recommend cold snares for small polyps, meaning less than 5 millimeters. This paper published in GUT was based on data from randomized prospective non-inferiority trial done in Japan, and they looked at about 1,000 polyps, randomized them to either cold or hot, and then took a bite from two sides of the polypectomy sites to look for residual polyp tissue. And they even included a cool image of basically shows what exactly do they mean in their trial design. And FYI here, the hot snare polyps were often lifted 44% and sometimes something was done to achieve hemostasis as well in about a third. So what's the verdict? Cold snare polypectomy was just as good, if not slightly better, than hot snares at resecting polyps completely. 98.2% versus 97.4%. So that's non-inferior and I think that's pretty cool. A while ago, I wrote an opinion piece regarding removing semethicone from the water that is used to irrigate the colon. I was really mad, and semethicone stayed in the water, thankfully. This paper coming from China is titled Impact of Pre-Procedure Semethicone on Adenoma Detection Rate During Colonoscopy. The authors say that adding semethicone to the PrEP itself helps avoid bubbles during the colonoscopy by reducing adhesion or residual stool to the mucosa, so also the patients get less bloated. So not only do patients feel better, during and after the colonoscopy if semethicone is given with the PrEP. The authors also claim that adding semethicone to the PrEP itself improves adenoma detection rate. So that's the claim. I don't understand how semethicone itself increases ADR compared to just washing bubbles away during colonoscopy. Because after all, detection of polyps is directly proportional to the cleanliness of the colon. So maybe they start off with a very poor PrEP. And this brings up another issue. This is the second study I see recently that shows for some reason a very low adenoma detection rate. In their control group, the ADR is just 14%. I don't know why. Now, it went up to 21% with semethicone, but it's still pretty low. Not terrible, but still low. Remember that it's 20% for women and 30% for men in the U.S. There is less bloating reported with semethicone, so that's good. But as far as PrEP quality is concerned, I don't think we can use this study to justify adding semethicone to the PrEP itself. When Crohn's disease was first described, surgery was the only treatment that was recommended. Right now, thankfully, we have more tools. And as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, there is literature out there to support the idea that we have anti-TNF drugs to thank for dropping rates of surgical resections for Crohn's disease. The Lancet published a seven-year-long randomized open-label trial of comparing ileocecal resection versus infliximab for patients with Crohn's disease limited to the terminal ileum. 
And this trial excluded patients who have failed steroids, thiopurins, methotrexate, excluded those with strictures or extensive disease. Basically, if you have disease limited to the terminal ileum, will you do better with anti-TNF treatments or with surgery? That's the trial. So they randomized about 70 patients to infliximab and about 70 to surgery. The biggest drawback of surgery is, of course, the rate of recurrence, and that's the whole idea behind the Rutgerts classification that's been developed and in this study, the recurrence rate was about 21% in the surgery group and about 16% in the infliximab group. Conclusion here is that surgery is a reasonable alternative to anti-TNF therapy as long as you don't have any strictures, fistulas, and your disease is limited to the TI. Not a new idea, but good to see that it's supported by a clinical trial. Basically, what I'm trying to say here is surgery is often forgotten as a treatment option for anti-TNF, and some people do very well. One of the major reasons patients don't want to have a colonoscopy is because they think it's painful and unpleasant. So anything we can do as GI docs to minimize these factors would lead to improved screening rates. This paper from Poland titled Modifiable Factors Associated with Patient-Reported Pain During and After Screening Colonoscopy is fantastic. They looked at over 20,000 screening colonoscopies and found the following factors that were associated with pain reduction. Propofol sedation, of course, came out on top. Odds ratio of 0.03 for women and 0.13 for men. The second one is using newer endoscopes, meaning the ones with variable stiffness and so-called responsive insertion technology. And the third one is actually good bowel prep, which is kind of a gimme. The fourth one is a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Docs who did high case volume had lower risk of a painful colonoscopy. The more you do, the better you get at it. But some things, I guess, can't be learned since there were endoscopists who tended to have more painful exams no matter how many procedures they did. There are a few important things to take away from here. One is that propofol is universally loved by patients. Some doctors are better than others. And there are a few patient-specific factors that make colonoscopy more painful, such as previous abdominal surgeries and obesity, as well as ability to have a good bowel prep. When it comes to treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, if money is no object and patient is otherwise healthy, one can often find specific allergen, say milk or wheat, after about three to four times. It seems crazy to do full EGDs over and over again to find out one food allergen that's responsible for symptoms, so it must be a better way. Many patients and clinicians opt out of this whole thing altogether and just have their patients stay on swallowed steroids, which seems counterproductive in the long term. And I think there are two alternatives that are kind of possible in the near future. One is transnasal endoscopy in the office, unsedated, when one is able to do a couple of biopsies in the esophagus after changing the diet once in a while. The other one is the new cytosponge thing that's been developed for mostly for Barrett surveillance. So this new paper published by Evan Dellen's group in the American Journal of Gastro describes their experience of using this cytosponge for EOE specifically. They did cytosponge in over 100 procedures and found that using 15 eosinophils as a cutoff, cytosponge had a sensitivity of 75% and specificity of about 86% when compared to biopsy, which is gold standard here. And this translates to a positive prediction value of about 88%. That's pretty good. Also, patients seem to like the cytosponge more than endoscopy. What's interesting here is that four of the patients in the study had a positive cytosponge collected samples with eosinophils and negative biopsies. The authors blame it on the fact that cytosponge is more generalized sampling compared to endoscopy. And for those of you who don't know what cytosponge is, it's basically a piece of sponge that's being dragged with a string through the esophagus collecting specimens of the mucosa. 
and then you basically take it, you wash it off, you spin it onto a slide and you take a look. This certainly is a step in the right direction and I can even see practice guidelines coming out say five, ten years from now that have Cytosponge as part of the protocol for this. I guess we'll have to wait for this thing to be approved and more importantly covered by insurance so we can use it in our patients. I haven't brought up any letters to the editors in the past, but this one deserves a mention. Joseph Furstein from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center wrote into the Red Journal to complain about the ADRs of a specific article. A few months back, the Red Journal published an article titled Water Exchange Method Significantly Improves Adenoma Detection Rate, a Multicenter Randomized Controlled Trial. Basically, the crux of the argument here that Joe is making is that while it's great that the ADR is improved when you use water versus air, but if you're starting from an ADR that is so substandard, it's borderline laughable, any improvement above such baseline is great. But there's no proof that this would apply to those with, well, I don't know, not substandard ADR. In response, the authors first say that ADR is generally lower in the place where the study was done, which is China, and it's about 15%, which seems to be true. And then they quote some other studies where ADR is not as low, and it's still an improvement in ADR when you're using water instead of air. My feeling is that Joe Furstein is probably right, meaning that if your ADR is low in one place, study findings cannot be directly applicable to another region. To the other folks' credit, I think if your ADR is low, you need to change something. And water exchange or water immersion or whatever else you want to do, just change something and give that thing a try to improve your ADR. Does obesity complicate IBD treatment? Yes, and in many ways. Here's a paper from the IBD Journal that looked at patients with Crohn's disease and high BMI and looked at loss of response to infliximab. They looked at 140 patients who were started on infliximab and split them into three groups based on their BMIs and then looked at what happened in terms of treatment with infliximab. Outcome here was how soon did these people need optimization, meaning increasing dosing of infliximab, etc. So two interesting observations in this study. The rate of requiring surgery was no different between obese patients and normal weight patients. The major thing here is that obesity patients required something like infliximab optimization, surgery, or steroids 83% of the time versus 43% for non-obese patients. So these patients have IBD that is much more difficult to manage and their IBD is harder to get into remission. Looking at infliximab dosing alone, 19% needed dose change if your BMI was normal and 56% needed it if you were obese. That's a big difference, 19 versus 56%. Maybe induction dose for obese patients needs to be higher, who knows. But don't be surprised if you observe this in your patient population yourselves. Also, this could be an added incentive to encourage your IBD patient to lose weight and exercise if they need it. What's better for colonoscopy? Fentanyl versed, propofol, no sedation? This new study published in Gastroenterology is a population-based study out of Canada with over 4 million patients having colonoscopy, 30% of which had anesthesia, meaning propofol. They looked at two weeks following colonoscopy and found 1,400 colonoscopy-related bowel perforations, 150 splenic injuries, 200 aspiration pneumonias. Odds ratio for this was 1.6 for pneumonias only, but not for splenic injuries or perforations. When you speak about absolute risk, it was 1 in 20,000 without anesthesia and 1 in 12,000 with anesthesia. And putting the question of cost aside, overall, I don't see the physiological reason why propofol would be less safe. I know there's respiratory depression, etc., but you can have that with fentanyl versed as well. Also, in, at least in my experience of doing unsedated procedures, only the healthy people elect to do unsedated procedures, so they wouldn't be counted 
and they would kind of skew the results because they're healthy. Also, I think that many places do hire ASA patients with propofol, and it's hard to remove this bias completely, and that's what's responsible for this increased risk. But we have to acknowledge that propofol thus far has been shown to be more dangerous in terms of risk of pneumonias, but the absolute risk is still very, very low. What's the rate of vertical transmission of hepatitis C virus? Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report has the numbers coming out of Wisconsin, which show that just like other states, Wisconsin is seeing increase in the rate of HCV infections in pregnant women. The rate of births to Wisconsin Medicaid recipients with HCV infection approximately doubled from 2011-2015, from 2.7% up to 5.2%. If these women had viremia during pregnancy, then the rate of transmission to the child was about 4% but apparently only a third of babies were tested. Just a note here, there are no approved treatment regimens for HCV during pregnancy yet. Atrial fibrillation ablation can cause damage to the GI tract? Oh yes, thankfully the rates are very low. This paper in Neurogastro looked at the records of over 5,000 atrial fibrillation ablations, specifically looking for GI complaints, and found 40 patients with upper GI complications. Out of the 40 patients, eight had actual structural damage, with majority having an ulcer or erythema of esophagus, and one developed an esophageal pericardial fistula, but still did okay after repair. So 15 patients had a motility problem, presumably arising after the ablation, with remaining 17 patients having, quote, GI issues, without any evidence on diagnostic testing of any abnormalities. Most importantly, the two patients that have died several weeks after ablation, there was a suspicion of atrial esophageal fistula or esophageal rupture, so not completely a benign procedure per se, but that leaves us with about 0.74% risk of GI complications following ablation. But wait, what about the vagal nerve injury? Studies in the past have reported the rate of injury as high as 5.8% for ablation. This study had 13 patients with vagal dysfunction, and majority of vagal dysfunction resolved spontaneously. The authors basically say that if vagal dysfunction is present, this could serve as a marker of extensive tissue damage so you should look for it, but thankfully most of the time it resolves. There's a review of hemorrhagic angiodysplasia in November issue of GIE. No, no magical revelations here, just a good old review. Here are some salient points to take away from this one. 1. Conditions that predispose you to development of angiodysplastic lesions in the gut. First one being aortic stenosis, the so-called Heidi syndrome. Second one being von Willebrand's disease. Third one being left ventricular assist devices, LVADs. Here the mechanism is the same as for aortic stenosis, probably elevated shear stress. Fourth one, chronic renal failure. Nobody knows why that is. Some say mucosal ischemia, others say hypercalcemia causing vascular calcifications leading to AVM formations. Fifth one is HHT, hereditary lesions, probably the most interesting of the bunch also known as Osler-Weber-Rendrew syndrome. Here your body generates too much VEGF and TGF-beta, and you end up with AVMs all in the wrong places. Now let's briefly describe the treatment. When you do endoscopy, you can fix these using either thermal probe or APC. There are no good head-to-head -head comparison trials, so and certainly no randomized trials to see which one is better. Use the one you feel most comfortable with. In terms of drugs, hormonal therapy has been tried, and there is a randomized trial of using norethinadryl with and without estrogen versus placebo, and this is a negative trial. 
somatostatin analogs, probably the most popular treatment, meta-analysis has shown that odds ratio of stopping bleeding with something like a creatide is 14.52, which is pretty good. So this is probably a good idea for those with refractory small bowel angiosplastic lesions. You can also use long-acting octreotide, and apparently this also saves money. Now, thalidomide. There was a randomized trial in 2011 which shows that it works very well. problem with this drug is that it requires special prescription and permission to prescribe it, and at least in my neck of the woods, because of that, the availability of it is limited. Anyway, a very comprehensive review and worth reading for sure. Now, there are many studies showing that colorectal cancer in the young is on the rise. Also, some other studies suggesting that the type of colon cancer that arises in young people is more aggressive, leading to worse outcomes. Hard to say what we can do about this. Certainly, there's little evidence justifying expanding colonoscopy screening to below age of 50 at this time. We have a hard enough time convincing folks over 50 to get screened. Imagine if we have to push colonoscopy on a 35-year-old. One strategy is to use fit testing and then only scope fit positive patients. And this is what the next paper from Korea, published in GIE, suggests. So this is a retrospective study, and basically they wanted to know if you are fit positive and younger than 50, are you at higher risk of cancer compared to those over the age of 50? So for this, they split up the patients into groups based on age, 30 to 34, 35 to 39, 40 to 44, 45 to 49, basically four groups under the age of 50, and compared these four groups to 50 to 59-year-olds. And I think the graphs in this paper are amazing with a gradual increase in risk of colorectal cancer with rising age. So in this paper, 3.8% of people between the ages of 50 and 60 had advanced colorectal neoplasia. And if you look at the young people with fit negative tests, the numbers were as follows. Going up in age by 5 years from 30, 0.4%, 0.7%, 1.4%, and 2.1%. So it's gradually creeping up. Now for fit positive people, the numbers were significantly higher. Once again, starting from age 30, creeping up by five years, 2.9%, 9.7%, 7.7%, and 14.6%. So this is like saying that fit positive people at age 30 is still at as much risk for colorectal cancer as a 50-year-old without any baseline testing, which is interesting. Takeaway for this paper, at least for me, is as follows. Number one, doing screening colonoscopies in 30-year-olds probably doesn't make much sense. Risk is just too low. Number two, Fit testing could be a good alternative to this. Number three, this is another nice study showing increasing risk of colorectal cancer with age, and it would be just really weird if it wasn't the case. Number four, this is another good study showing that fit testing really works, meaning that positive fit patients end up with more advanced adenomas. Sensitivity and specificity of fit testing was recalculated here for their patient population, and it was 23.5% for sensitivity and 96.6% for specificity and it was still pretty good for young people too. Number five, authors suggest that starting fit testing at age 35 is reasonable. I don't know if that's true, but it certainly gives you some food for thought. Number six, I'm going to quote the accompanying editorial here. Lowering the screening age now would be an emotional response to a problem that needs reason and greater understanding. So what do you think we should do? Let me know on Twitter or comments on gipearls.com. So I'll stop here and I'll start working on the next podcast so we're not too far behind. Remember, once again, we're going to be out every three weeks now instead of two weeks. The links to the articles are in the show notes as well as on the website at gipearls.com. Send me an email if you have something to say or questions or ideas. Otherwise, find me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. By the way, good luck to all of you who took the GI boards today. 